Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. In this episode, we are picking up where we last left off. We are doing our discussion of pages 90 through 107 of A Story by John V. Marsh. I'm excited to get into this, but before we do, just a reminder that our patron poll to pick the next batch of short stories we're going to be reading is coming up very soon. So please check that out. But now let's get into it. There's so much to discuss about this section, uh, and I'm really excited about it. Well, I think we did a pretty good job of going through and looking back on what we talked about in our last discussion during the recap. So I don't want to spend too much extra time uh, cleaning up the suppositions or predictions we made. As I said, I think we did a, a fair job of correcting our vision of what was happening in the text so much more information came to light. So I thought it might be helpful for us to structure our conversation around what we know about the three factions at play in the story so far. To look at the hill people, the marshmen, the people of the meadow mirrors, and the shadow children, and see if we can pick apart what's going on in this story, what we learn about the world, what action is taking place, and why. And I'm sure, as our listeners have noticed, we'll probably make some claims that we'll have to correct as we learn more about what's going on in this story, this is a very difficult story to interpret because of the levels of textuality that are taking place. Yeah, but for me, part of the fun actually is to deal with the evidence as we get and to try to fit it into the picture of what we already have, even knowing that we're going to get more evidence later. I think perhaps this is something that you and I really enjoy doing because of our background as as analysts in, in the Army. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's one of my favorite things about reading in general. I mean, very rarely do I have time to sit down and read a novel in one go. And so I'm always making these kind of assumptions and critical leaps as I read. And it's part of what I love about reading. And it's what I want to share. And Glenn, I think you want to share with our listeners as we're doing this book club style podcast, which is to encounter stories the way that we can as we go through them, not necessarily with a grand thesis in mind. Yeah, exactly. And of course, I should also say that this is very much what I do for my day job as well, trying to understand, trying to reconstruct the societies of the past, societies thousands of years old, 1500 years old from extremely limited evidence. Right. And I mean, you made, I think, a connection there between your attempt to cobble together the past as a historian and the possibility that this story takes place a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Right. If we didn't already have some sense that there is an Earth and that humans have come to Saint Croix from Earth, I would absolutely believe that this is a long time ago. In fact, actually, probably if I encountered this novella on its own with no understanding of what it was connected to, I would be thinking that this is actually going to turn out to be planet Earth itself and that we're getting some sort of secret history of humans with other types of sentient creatures in the remote past, you know, 100,000 years ago or something like that. And like the Hyperborean age, like some Robert E. Howard stuff. And we've already made connections to Trip Trap in this story. This story feels a lot like elements of Trip Trap that Wolf has been working on for now, you know, 10 years of his writing career. And so far, this is shaping up to be a real masterpiece of the genre well, you wanted to catalog what we know about the three distinct groups that we meet in this story. So let's do that. I'm excited to do this. Right. So let's start with the Hill People. And this is Sandwalker's clan. 
Uh, and I don't know why we haven't used Clan during the recap. That is the most apt term. <laughs> it is uh, kind of the sub of the whole Hill People tribe. And I think we can tell that there are multiple clans at this point within the Hill People. That is one thing we know. We also know that they have a reverence for dreamers. And maybe everybody on this planet has this reverence for dreaming. We know that this great age in the past was called the time of the long dreaming. And it's a mythic past. Though this is very much still uh, an honorific culture, a kind of heroic age that these people are living in. And we can know that because of what we know about English literature and the way people use titles to introduce themselves is a sign that we are in a heroic age. Yeah, something that we haven't pointed out during the recaps or during this recap in particular is that Sandwalker, you know, he does use these heroic titles, these sort of heroic epithets. But I've been pointing out in, in using Wolf's similes because I think they're beautiful or kind of ridiculous or being used very well to flesh out the world. But these similes and especially nature similes are characteristic of Homeric epic as are epithets. And Wolf is clearly bringing in those features to this story to clue readers into what type of story we are in, right? This is not a science fiction story about cloning in the basement of a brothel. This is an epic story, a fantasy story. It's a heroic story, a totally different genre. Yeah, and I just love how Wolf is using the character of John V. Marsh, who, as far as we know right now, is all he appears to be, a person from Earth, to tell us this story so that people from Earth could read it. We pointed out that hunting is very important to these tribes and that most likely this is the result of how the tribe is organized or the clan is organized around the need for survival and that this clan is nomadic and maybe all the clans are. This is an assumption made based on the changing sleeping places, the importance of the sleeping place, and Seven Girls Waiting's group leaving her behind, her own clan kind of abandoning her. Natural forces and spirits of nature play an important role in their world. They are acting in the world, and, and the clan almost has a passive relationship with the world. We see that in the way that Sandwalker thinks about God in that way we talked about predestination, and nothing will happen without God willing it. And this is important when we get to the idea of extension with the shadow people and substances, is that the natural world seems to act with a with a kind of volition on the the people in this world. And at least the natural world has some sort of spiritual existence that is just out of reach of the waking mind. This clan, and possibly the whole tribe of the hill people have a real fearful reverence for the shadow children who are perhaps named after one of their constellations or glenn as you pointed out are the constellation is named for them for some reason that goes all the way back to the mythic past and we also know that the shadow children view the hill people as animalistic as a different species from their own as i pointed out i don't think the hill people recognize the contribution of men to procreation to how children are made. And as we said, there seems to be some sense that they're involved based on the way they worship trees and the euphemism for the male reproductive organ that's used in this story. But the important thing is that trees father children and trees can reach out in dreams to pregnant women when it comes to them and let them know that they are the father of children. And at least one tree has done this in order to protect his 
child and the, the mother of his child. And we also know that Sandwalker, at least after his encounter with the Shadow Children and his being able to be well-fed, has been able to take on some aspects of the Otter in order to rescue his tribe or to go on the new quest of rescuing his tribe from the Marshmen. Well, let me complicate some of what you said and, and maybe even pick at some of it a little bit and trouble it. Uh, the first thing, I, I just want to make sure that we're pointing out or that we're clear about that we have a disproportionate amount and different types of information for the hill people and the shadow children versus the marshmen. I think it's absolutely fair to be describing the hill people as nomadic hunters, or at least as a people with a sizable percentage of its population that is living that way or is at least devoted to hunting. We do know that that's a specialized job that Sandwalker has. And we see the Shadow Children also. They're clearly hunting and they don't seem to have any buildings, much like the Hill People. We don't seem to see any construction of buildings. We do have a sense of weapons and a limited sense of other types of tools, but no construction, nothing that indicates any type of permanent settlement. We don't know that about the Marshmen. And I actually think that the ritual of sending adolescent boys away from women to go become scarred by volcanic lava indicates that there is actually settlement there. And this would make sense, perhaps, given the different types of terrain, the meadow mirrors. Meadow mirrors sounds like a nice place to build a home and uh, retire and play solitaire or whatever people do when they retire. Podcasts, I guess. Whereas... Sandwalker's environment sounds terrible, and there there is no way to live there other than to follow other creatures around and to eke out a life by consuming theirs. Right, and we'll have a little bit more to say about the Marsh people, but you're absolutely right that we have such a limited amount of information about who they are and what they value. But I think when we catalog what we do know, I hope we're going to be able to make a connection between what's going on in the background action of the story and what we know about, particularly about the Hill people. I love that you brought up the ritual of the sending out for the scarring away from the girls for the people of the meadow mirrors, because the sea, we see the same thing happening with the hill people. The boys are sent away to, to hunt for days and days. Yet we also see that it seems as though sex is a very natural part of their existence and culture as well in a way that's very different than it is for the marsh people. And I also want to just remind our listeners that the meadow mirrors are the biggest feature of this planet. It gives St. Anne a green glow when it rises in the sky in San Croix. So just in the same way that the, the seas and oceans give San Croix the, the blue color in the sky, from the other planet, St. Anne is green. Right. It's completely possible that there's a huge, sophisticated, complex civilization and a whole empire that is grown up around the shores of these connected meadow mirrors, a sort of Roman empire on St. Anne or something like that. And the plot of our story might actually be about a military unit or a community on the fringes of that civilization dealing with the troublesome nomads who sometimes raid their settled community. We're just getting it from the perspective of an uneducated adolescent boy of the troublesome nomads. And then we have to ask the question, why are we getting this heroic tale of the nomads as the choice that John V. Marsh uses for his story about St. Anne as an anthropologist. What is he telling us about this planet that's important about the value of the hill people when I think the natural thing to do would be to tell the story of the dominant population? 
Well, we're about to get there. I mean, clearly, Sandwalker is on his way there. Sandwalker and Eastwind are about to cross paths. And so we are going to get this story of these two brothers raised in different cultures, reuniting. Eastwind doesn't know that he has his own biological mother held prisoner and that he's maybe just murdered his own uncle. He might find out something along those lines soon and we might get some conflicts in Eastwind, perhaps as his loyalties are torn or something along those lines. That seems sort of to be the, the sort of basic plot. Right, but who knows? This is a wolf story after all. Right. It could turn out to be a hard-boiled detective story. <laughs> I'd love to see that. I mean, that's a great writing prompt if anyone wants wants that. Take the first half of this story and turn it into a hard-boiled detective story. Finish it. Write the, write the last two acts as a hard-boiled detective story. <laughs> Please do. And we brought up this question of how are babies made, which I never thought was going to be. <laughs> I never thought that was going to be in the preview of this podcast when we got started. But it turns out it is. And the, the question here is, are babies made by men and women having sex? Are they made by trees impregnating hill people, women? Are children made in both of those ways? Uh, those are sort of the options that seem to be on the table right now. I think it's worth taking this culture, worth taking the words of Seven Girls Waiting at face value, especially given that the story opens with a birth that in which there is no father. And it's pretty clear in that opening passage that Wolf is suggesting that she has not had sex with anyone. So I think we should keep an open mind to the possibility that these abos, who we know are not homo sapiens, or at least are probably 90% sure are not homo sapiens, might have very different ways of reproducing than, than we do. So I do want to keep an open mind about that. Right. As we found out on a number of occasions, there are two or three levels that we could be reading each description, each metaphor, each instance of what's taking place in this story. And that makes it so complicated. And one thing that I find to be very complicated is why John V. Marsh, the author of this story, has decided to call all males John. That just signifies that it's a boy child or a man child and all girls Mary. Though you pointed out that Mark Aramini believes this is a this is a typo, this is a mistake. What is John Marsh pulling on to use that naming convention? And why would he want people to believe that that's a naming convention, that there's some inherent knowledge, perhaps, that would allow for people to name their children thus? It's very, very unclear. Though we know that in the even deeper past, before this story takes place, at least as the myths of the hill people go, the shadow children who came from another planet did live among the natives of this planet. There are a number of curious and interesting questions that arise about the function of this naming convention of John and Mary. John for boys, Mary for girls. Even if we allow that there's a society, and perhaps there is a, a culture, that deems it necessary to indicate the gender of each member of its community with a word, with a name, with a designation of some sort, a gendered designation. I'm sure there's been a human civilization that has done that. That seems perfectly plausible. One of the things that really jumps out here is that so far, this is the only name that we get, and all the names that we have of constellations, planets, the second and third names of people, the names of animals. This is the only indication of human names being applied to things, or the names of human people being applied to things. Perhaps we can assume that John V. Marsh, who is telling this story, 
maybe he thinks this is a true story, a true account that he's recording, and he is translating that into English for us, for or perhaps even for, for readers in Port Mimizan. Why is he choosing John and Mary for those names? Why is he choosing to represent the words that way as opposed to making a literal translation of what those words might mean or even just giving us the actual abo, the actual hill person word for that untranslated? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it speaks to what you pointed out, which I found fascinating, which I totally skipped over when I was reading it was the, the French untranslated word for egret. So maybe that speaks to his audience in some way, that maybe he is writing this for people of Port Mimizan. Maybe this is his thesis in the university or something like that that's meant to be read by academics. But the question remains, exactly why wouldn't he just say, man, Sandwalker, and man, Eastwind, and woman, seven girls waiting, and woman, pink butterflies, or something like that? Why John and Mary, I think, is a crucial question to this text. Right. And of course, we've already mentioned, and it's obvious to everybody that these names are of religious significance and that names of religious significance are at the center of this story. The planets, the names of the planets, or at least the names that humans give these planets are Christian names or are names that are important in the story of Christ. So are Mary and John. Mary is the mother of Christ. John is the name of several people who are important in the Christ story. John the Baptist, who is uh, something of the, the herald of Christ or the, the maybe the precursor of Christ. But there is also a John who writes an account, a gospel, a story of Christ. Certainly these names belong together, but a much better name that belongs with Mary than John is Joseph, her husband. So even here, there's interesting choices that are being made. In particular, I'm not clear on why John. Why Mary makes sense to me. If the planet is St. Anne, and maybe in some sense the planet is the grandmother of us all, then it might make sense to that all of our women are named Mary for the daughter of Anne in the Christ story. But why John? Why not Joseph? Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it's clear also that John Marsh, the author, his first name is John. And it asks us to make a connection between this sort of naming convention and the author of the story. And hopefully something will come to light of that. Yeah, but also, Glenn, you brought up during the recap that Mark Aramini is convinced that Mary is a typo. What does he have to say about that? Here's where we should remind listeners that we are intentionally not reading the scholarship until we are all the way done with all three novellas in the collection, because we don't want them to color our close readings of the text as we go. But when Mark and I were communicating about setting up the conversation that we had with him about Fifth Head of Cerberus, in which we talked about all of the, the typos and various textual problems in this 1994 Orb edition, he mentioned to me that he thinks that Mary is a typo here, and that it should be many pink butterflies, not Mary pink butterflies, since we never see Mary again. I have some thoughts on this, but maybe I'll, I'll kick it to you first. I mean, it's a wonderful question. I, I don't know without knowing kind of the manuscript history, if I would make that connection just based on the reason why the girl of seven girls waiting is called Mary pink butterflies. The first is she calls her pink butterflies because of the way her hands move around as she's born. And hands could look like butterfly wings, but fingers typically do not. 
And so for me, I'm comfortable with, with it being Mary Pink Butterflies. Well, I think part of Mark's objection to this was that we don't get Mary in front of any of the other women's names, and we aren't going to in either of the next two sections that we have. But we do get John, and we are told explicitly all boys are named John. So Mark questions the utility of the name Mary here versus it being many pink butterflies. But in this scene, we learn the name of pink butterflies because her mother tells it to Sandwalker. I think that she's using Mary here in front of pink butterflies to make it clear to Sandwalker, who has just met them, that her baby is female. Because this is not something that is visually obvious. I think everyone has been in a situation where someone has mistaken the gender of someone else's baby and it's been socially awkward at a party or on the street or something like that. That's what she's doing here. She's indicating that this baby is female and it is explicit in the narrative up to that point that Sandwalker does not ascribe a gendered identity to pink butterflies. He describes pink butterflies only as an infant or a baby or a child, not as a boy or as a girl. So I, I think in this case, I, don't, I just don't think Mark is right here. Yeah, I can't wait till we get to the wrap-up discussion of the trilogy of novellas and can really dig into this question with him and hear his reasoning because it's always great. So I, I'm excited to, to have that conversation. Yeah, we'll give him a chance to defend himself and prove <laughs> us wrong, I'm sure. Right. The last question I want to ask you about the Hill people here is whether or not you think there's any significance to Sandwalker coming across this sacred oasis, this significant place with the mother and child at this part of his, what is clear, I think, to any reader of fantasy since 1970s, is part of his hero's journey. What significance, what role do you think this plays for him? Well, as I framed it in the recap, this episode puts Sandwalker in an ethical dilemma where there's this young woman and a brand new baby who need his help to get food. But he is also already under this obligation to be going to become the pupil of this priest, which is something that is maybe not just of cultural significance, but perhaps of real material consequence to his family, to his community. And we see him wrestling with this choice in the way that he decides to go hunting. First, he goes hunting for big game to bring to the priest. And then when he comes back and sees, one, how hungry they are, but also, perhaps more importantly, sees how generous and selfless Seven Girls Waiting is, he realizes that he's been ethically in the wrong here. That's explicit in the text that that's what's going on. But the other way to read this in terms of the hero's journey is to see that this really is Gene Wolfe's rom-com here, that he is being tempted away from his mission to become the priest's pupil by the temptation of love and sex with this woman, but also this family. I think he has a certain satisfaction from caring for these people, of having a place in this brand new and instantaneous community or family unit that he finds himself an important part of. And this is important because when he wakes from the dream, aware of or feeling anyway that his former family or his biological family is in jeopardy and needs him, 
that this again is another choice or at least could be another choice for a different hero we don't see him wrestle with that at all and in fact the narrative really seems to emphasize that he just gets up and jumps in the river and maybe turns into an otter or something but i think that what they represent are is the temptation of pleasure and the temptation of mundanity the temptation of the real world versus the call uh, towards heroism. Yeah, that is a really fantastic reading of that. What's interesting about the ethical dilemma aspect of it is that he's rewarded for caring for this woman and child in the right way. And in fact, the material food that he eats, the hive, the honeycomb, the larva, all of it materialize in the spiritual world as the the proper sacrifice for the priest. And that to me is like a really fascinating point of this story is that he had the wrong sacrifice the first time, which is always kind of a part of the hero's journey as well. Right. And there's a real symbolism here to what it is that he brings. At first, he just brings one small animal that he has killed and maybe ripped from its its life, from its environment. Here, he's bringing honeycomb with live animals on it. And the honeycomb, of course, is also sweet. And if we think that these are perhaps not literally bees, but are some St. Anne analog to bees, then what he's bringing is something that a community has constructed together for their children to live in and that tastes sweet to us when we consume it. That even symbolizes what he himself has just found with Seven Girls Waiting and Mary Pink Butterflies, and also what he's about to see in the dream of his family, of his community in Jeopardy. That even just the food that he's bringing is actually something that symbolizes that. Yeah, it's great. There's so much going on in this story, so much richness. And I have to say, I'm could not be more surprised with how much I love this story so far as I was poking ahead while I was reading Fifth Head and kind of trying not to read a story by John V. Marsh. I would always turn to that page and look at the first few sentences and thought, oh my God, I don't know if I'm going to like this story at all. I love it. I don't know if I like it more than Fifth Head, but it is really a masterpiece so far. But I think it is also probably a shock if you are reading this like a novel and you turn the page from Fifth Head of Cerberus and you think that You've seen the title of it, and so you think that you're going to get a story about Dr. Marsh, and you're interested in Dr. Marsh because there's this question of, is he really who he says he is? And all of a sudden, you're not reading a science fiction story that takes place in Port Mimizan anymore. You're suddenly reading a fantasy story that's written in a totally different voice and a, a totally different mood and is full of weird nature similes and heroic epithets. And it seems mostly to be about dreams, even more so than the fifth head of Cerberus was. And it's not clear who anyone is or what's going on. That, that's got to be a weird move to make. I've never made that move. I've always allowed some time between the stories. But I can see that as being a very jarring thing. That's just part of the genius of Wolf, of breaking storytelling conventions. Well, let's zoom through the Marshmen here real quick and see if we can just figure anything out about the conflict that's been taking place in the background of the story, but we'll very quickly, I'm sure, move to the foreground. As we said, the people of the Meadowmeres or the Marshmen, they're called that interchangeably in the story, are Eastwind's uh, adoptive tribe. They live in a 
very different geographical landscape, as you pointed out, Glenn. They live in these meadow seas. I mean, Mir is this word for sea. And this is the dominant geographic feature of the planet, as we've also said. But there's also volcanic mountains close by. So you have this, I don't know, steady flow of lava. It feels like an active volcano and rich soil as a result and just the potential for agriculture, for things that build civilization. We know that this group tests its men through this trial by fire in the volcanic rivers and that they are somehow able to withstand the burns on their heads and thighs and still procreate, which is fascinating. And in fact, they have to do this before they're allowed to procreate with the women of their tribe. In this section of the story, we don't know why, but they capture and kill some of Sandwalker's clan. And and he... Sandwalker witnesses this only through the mystical connection he has with his twin, Eastwind. We also know that they have a monk type of class that values star walking, which is a type of astral projection into the cosmos. But we don't know, as I said, any of their motivations, but I hope we can speculate. But the first question I have is, why do you think living in these different geographies lead to to such distinct practices? I'll take it as a truism, really, that we are very much shaped by our environments, both as individuals and as groups, as communities, as civilizations, or as cultures. I think it is worth pointing out that one of the central questions of the fifth head of Cerberus is, are we who we are because of our nature or because of our nurture? We are clearly on the cusp of getting that again, and again in the form of two brothers who have a shared biological heritage, but have been raised in different communities, uh, different cultures completely. I think this is a question we're going to get to tackle more in the next section and again in our wrap-up. What I will say here is that I really love the way that Wolf is being cognizant of the myriad and detailed and minute ways that environments shape our behavior and shape our culture and even shape shape our culture to the extent that they shape the stories that we tell, that they shape what we see when we look at the stars even. Wolf is doing a brilliant job here of even giving us the same constellations and giving us two names for them, giving us the names of nomadic, barely surviving hill people, and then the names that the marshmen, that these uh, these people who seem to live in a lush, fertile part of the planet give to them. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I also think it has to do with the nature of their dreaming. And this is a big part of the inhabitants, the native population of this planet is dreaming. You know, their their deep myths go back to this long dreaming before there was a time where there was a real fracture, perhaps between these different tribes and clans. And, and we know that because of the line, when God was king of men, and the men walked unafraid of the shadow children by night, and the shadow children unafraid sought the company of men by day. Men is one category here. This is all men living together under the rule of God who orders all things. And I wonder if the conflict here that's taking place in the background isn't about trying to reclaim this long dream of, of an attempt to reunite these two tribes, of bringing the people back together, of, of combining their versions of dreaming in the world and the importance of dreaming in order to reclaim this mythic past. That's an interesting supposition. So it is absolutely clear that dreams are playing a much more vital role in the two human 
communities, then certainly they play in ours. I have some vivid dreams, and sometimes I tell you what they are when they're funny or they're about the work we used to do in the army. Right. <laughs> but they don't really mean anything to me, and they certainly aren't a job that I'm going to have. I'm not about to, to go enroll in a cave school so that I can learn how to astrally project myself. So there are a couple of things that are happening here in this world with that. One is the rich cultural significance that seems to be paid to dream life. But there is also a real sense here that these people who I think we're both pretty certain are not homo sapiens, that they are these abos, the, the indigenous sentient creatures of St. Anne, their dreaming seems to be physically different than ours. And of course, that's going to shape their their culture, just in the same way that having physically different eating or reproduction or relationships with hot and cold and wet and dry or water at all would change and shape a culture. So that seems to be happening here. But Wolf is not explaining that to us from the perspective of some historian or anthropologist who is writing about these people. He is doing what he does best, which is describing this world from the perspective of people who live in it. So at this point, I don't have any confidence in saying that I understand at all what is going on with dreams. But I would not be surprised to discover that these adolescents we're encountering who are learning how to dream are really being trained in some sort of telecommunications technique that's going to be important for their community, an ability to communicate with people who are further away, possibly an ability to gather information, to to witness things that are much further away. This seems to be a feature of their existence, and it's just not clear how that really functions yet. Well, I think our next section about the shadow children and what we learn about them is going to help us tease out some of what is going on with the nature of the spirit in this world. So I know you have a bunch you want to say about the shadow children, but first let's just characterize what they are. They call themselves men, indicating perhaps that they are part of mankind in the the line of Adam, as it's put to us in Fifth Head. But as I pointed out, Wolf is very tricky with his language here. When the Shadow Child says to Sandwalker, men are not as you, men do not eat the flesh of their kind, they're engaging in this accusation and response to the accusation of cannibalism. And he's responding, at least to the fear that the Shadow Child would eat people of his own kind, you know, or one another. So they're making a distinction that men are not like you because men don't eat the flesh of their own kind. But that is one universal blanket statement about what men are, but then following it up with a particular and saying it's it's the no true Scotsman argument. It's a logical fallacy. It does not stand up under real scrutiny. And here's some characteristics of the shadow children that we get as well that Marsh tells us. Their heads are able to turn like owls. They have talons sometimes, and sometimes hands. Their mouths are not human, or at least not what Sandwalker would recognize as human. They have short legs. They think Sandwalker's an animal, and their faces, or at least one of their faces, as, as it's reflected in Sanqua's blue light, is dark and weak with huge eyes above sagging flesh. They have sunken cheeks and a nose and mouth that are no bigger than an infant's. But all of this is complicated by the variety of faces that Sandwalker sees as he's engaged in this ritual, uh, this feast. 
They sleep during the day, and their bite may be poisonous. And through their songs, they call or summon someone called the Old Wise One, who is a representation of their songs, who is made up of their songs, and who Sandwalker first mistakes for a ghost because of the Old Wise One's transparency. And I just have to ask, first, is this just a hologram? Is this another telecommunications technique that calls this hologram to the planet when they're they're feasting somebody who's off planet maybe giving them guidance or directions or i don't know what's going on there right what's in the text is that he is a another form of consciousness that happens when these seven individuals here link up their thoughts in some kind of telepathy among their psyches among their brains create a single entity that is representative of all of them together in unison that is as opposed to their individualities it's sort of a a collective persona for them i don't know that wolf is yet thinking that he might use holographs in that way though of course we've seen him use holographs throughout operation aries but i don't think that's what's happening here i think that we should take at face value what the old wise one says And if not, if we don't want to take that at face value, I think that there are other angles at which we might see this as not being literally true. Right. The old wise one, though, is explaining something very sophisticated the best way he can to someone who is not able to understand the concepts that allow the shadow children to exist the way they exist among the other people of this planet. Well, there are a few more things we should probably talk about about their nature one is they self-identify as being from another planet and that planet has a yellow sun and that planet is not in the constellation of the shadow child because if it were they would make that clear which raises a number of questions about the naming of the constellation and the the people on the planet we know that they are part of the mythic past of sandwalker's clan that they are part of the planet that allowed them to interact harmoniously with the native population when God ruled over men. Finally, we know that these songs that they sing shake extension, not sound waves. There's some distinguishment, at least in the science or technology or magic of these people, about what exists in the air. We have this whole conversation about the nothing being the thing that keeps things apart. And all of this leads to what extension is. And as I said in the recap, it is a special term in philosophy and kind of extends to physics in some way about the properties, the characteristics of substances. Now, I don't want to go too far afield here. I'm going to go right to what I think the meat of the notion is without taking 20 minutes to talk about substances. I want to talk about panentheism which is the idea that everything is one substance that operates in various modes. This was an idea that was found in Neoplatonism, then some credit to uh, Baruch Spinoza, and then it becomes kind of a bigger idea, especially in the world, as I said, of like quantum physics. When we talk about quantum entanglement, we're talking about two substances interacting and affecting one another that we maybe wouldn't believe could impact one another. In panentheism, which is the idea that all is one substance, there are two modes. There's thought and matter. And under these modes, one substance cannot really impact another one. The one substance of everything is 
God. God is everything, and God has infinite modes, but we only are able to experience the two, the thought and the matter. Matter has extension, and thought does not. We can't point to a thought in the world and talk about its existence. And these modes can't really influence one another. But this allows for like miracles to take place, right? In the spirit world to be able to impact the material world and and the the whole idea of ghosts, everything that's happening in the story, trees impregnating people. My gut here is that this is a panentheist world. Everything is one substance, but they have it reversed that the spirit world is in a weird way, able to impact the mode of matter, or that the spirit world is given dominance over the world of matter. And this is another kind of Neoplatonist thought. The spirit is good, the body is bad. And I think we see this explicitly in Sandwalker's notion that the body is a shadow cast ahead of the spirit, that the spirit is the real form. And so the old wise one is trying to explain to Sandwalker what he means when he says they shake extension. And he's talking about the ability for the spirit world to impact the spirit world. And by this, I mean something like quantum entanglement or particle physics, something that Einstein wrote about in 1935 that cannot be explained to Sandwalker because the best he can do is say that nothing is what holds all things apart. But we know that now, and have known for a long time, that there's a lot of stuff in nothing. And that is what they're trying to explain. And I think that that is all over this story. We're talking about a world of spiritual extension, of the spiritual world having substance. And as a result, it is a very alien world from our own. Yeah, he's trying to describe telepathy in some sense, right? He's trying to explain to Sandwalker how he will be able to communicate with them just by using his mind and over great distances without being anywhere near them, how they'll be able to hear him, he'll be able to hear them, and how he'll be able to get their attention. This, of course, is a classic trope of both science fiction and fantasy and even horror, of of speculative fiction in general. It is such a trope that we just completely take it for granted that when I open up an X-Men comic book or watch an episode of Babylon 5, I just accept that there are telepaths because that's a thing that exists in these types of stories. Wolf here seems to be trying to actually understand how that would work biologically or physically, how the world of the spirit or the the mind actually interacts with the physical world, with the world of matter. How can your thoughts actually manifest in my mind, which is housed in a brain or which is made up of electrical impulses in biological cells? encased in my body. It strikes me that Wolf is trying to make his telepaths grounded in the world of both body and spirit and not just a trope. Right. How do the modes actually interact with each other? And is it spirit interacting with spirit as we see with the ghost and Sandwalker, the ghost of the priest who needs Sandwalker's spirit to be housed in his body in order to be received? Because if it's absent, if no one's home, there's no way for the spirit to interact with that other mode. This leads me then to think about the way reproduction happens with the hill people. To me, I think it is 
clear that the physical interacts with the physical, but their belief is that there is a spiritual interaction with the physical, that these two modes interact, that non-extension can impact objects with extension. And I think Wolf is pointing us to a world where there is a robust spirit life as a real mode that has extension, that has being in a way that's very different, that can impact other spirits. One mode can affect the same mode of its type. The same way if I throw a rock at a window, it would break the window. That is the physical mode, the material mode. But I just think that's what's going on here. He's, he's giving us the kind of metaphysics of the story in this description and allowing for odd types of perhaps technology to take place, which Sandwalker couldn't understand. If these shadow children are in fact humans, there is something changed about them. Well, that brings us to the real burning, the real pressing question about the shadow children, which is, are they humans from Earth? There's certainly indications uh, that they are. There is a lot to be made, right, of this conversation about who is a man and who is not. Are the shadow children men? Are the hill people men? Is everybody men? And you've done a great job of pointing out that from Sandwalker's perspective, the hill people and the marshmen are all men and shadow children are something different. This is also true from the Shadow Children's perspective. They think of themselves as being distinct from the Hill People and Marshmen, who may have their own distinctions, but from their perspective are in a category unto themselves, or a category that is distinct from the Shadow Children. The Shadow Children claim that they have come to this planet from the stars. They are star travelers. They call Sandwalker and his species native animals. So there's two things happening there. One, they believe that Sandwalker and his species are indigenous creatures to this planet, and they also think that they are less than they are, and possibly not even truly sentient, possibly not even truly persons, uh, and that therefore they are animals. That's all clear in the text. The real question, though, comes when we get this yellow star pointed out. And we are told that that's where they come from. And this is, again, a science fiction trope, uh, a way of of how humans show the uncivilized, the barbaric, the undeveloped, to use a terrible teleology, civilization that they find on a planet that they're colonizing or exploring to demonstrate that they are not of this planet, is to point up to the yellow star. This is in several Star Trek episodes. It's in Arthur C. Clarke. It's all over science fiction. Wolf is perhaps playing with that here as he's always playing, but I do think that this is a question that we should take seriously. Are the shadow children humans from Earth? And the secondary question there is, are these things that you perceive as changes really just because we're seeing ourselves through the eyes of a wholly alien species? That would be Wolf playing the game of making strange, which is something he loves to do. And it could very well be. I don't have enough evidence at this point. And this problem of extension of the summoning of the old wise one, the sense that these shadow children are a part of the mythic history of this clan, of this tribe, all make me wonder about how they have survived on this planet for so long without replenishing their stock. And have they interbred with this species on the planet. And perhaps that's what leads to these changes. The The human brain in being 
able to fully understand the nature of this kind of spiritual mode maybe allows them to make these changes to communicate across large distances. I need more evidence. I'm not 100% where you are yet with, uh, with the belief that they're human. I don't believe that they are. I believe that we're supposed to be considering the possibility. I, I do consider the possibility here. You have good objections. This business of the mythic past is a fantastic objection. They've clearly been here long enough to have become an important part in the story that Sandwalkers people tell about themselves and their distant past and that there is a constellation named after them and that this is not a a new thing. This raises all sorts of questions. One of which is, and, and this is really prompted by your thinking that maybe the shadow children are the biological descendants of humans mating with the Abos. It's very unlikely that these are the Homo sapiens from Quebec or the United States who have colonized this planet only 200 years ago. And this might lead us to the metatextuality of this story. Is this a science fiction story that John V. Marsh is writing about what might actually happen if humans and abos ceased being colonizer and colonized and in fact began to live on the planet in a kind of symbiosis that's a fantastic question and would be a great way to explore what that might look like and we'd have to wonder why john marsh would be interested in in asking that question another possibility that could be though it kind of shoots the extension argument as as poorly developed as that was in it in the foot is are they purely spiritual beings do they only exist at night because they are pure spirit and are they some melding of these two modes of the material they eat they need to eat but are they so distinct that they are able to interact both with the the spirit world and the the physical world in some way are they truly just a really hyper advanced species and we have no indication of that here at all. We don't see them with any kind of tools. They're just eating a tick deer. They are even described with an animal simile. They're described as being bat-like as they circle this animal. They claim to be extremely different from Sandwalker and the native animals of this planet, but they don't seem to me to be very different, actually. It's hard for me to tell the difference between these uh, groups. That could even lead us to ask the question of if, if they're real or not, in the same way we know from the outside of the text that abos are real, that there's a real species of abos on the planet. There's a lot of games being played with this notion of <laughs> the shadow children on this planet and what types of beings they are. And I do want us now to go to your comment in the recap about what's going on with the fairy imagery that is connected to the shadow children. As we said repeatedly in this discussion and in the recap, we are clearly in a a heroic fantasy story. We have a protagonist who is going on a hero's journey, and part of the hero's journey is to, in fact, usually the middle phase of the hero's journey is to gather magical allies. Uh, Joseph Campbell, of course, came up with the blueprint for the hero's journey based on a project in comparative mythology and we see these types of stories you know, throughout cultures, and, and they, they manifest in different ways. But a tradition that's extremely important in Western culture, and perhaps even in particular in English-speaking culture, is the fairy story. And so much of what is the fantasy genre, and, and really 
almost all of what was the fantasy genre at the time that Wolf was writing this grows out of English literature and especially Middle English literature as it was interpreted by a couple of Oxford professors, uh, namely Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. In this bit of a story by John V. Marsh, the Shadow Children are clearly operating in exactly the same way that fairies do in countless Middle English poems, and also the way that they do throughout Middle Earth and also in Narnia. And I thought it would be worthwhile to go through just three almost random samples of Middle English literature to show the ways that Wolf is borrowing from those pieces. And maybe that will help us understand what is going on with them in the text, even if we are not maybe sure about the veracity of the claims that they are making. So the first text that that I just want to run us through is called Sir Landfall. And this was a a poem by Thomas Chester. It's an adaptation of several earlier works, some of which were also in Middle English, some of which were in Middle French. Uh, Lawnfall is an Arthurian knight. These are all going to be Arthur stories, really. Uh, He's an Arthurian knight who has fallen on hard times due to court politics. And because of that, he has to just wander around as knights do when they fall on hard times. And as he is wandering, he encounters some fairies. When he gets deep into a forest, he finds hidden there an opulent like pavilion or a, a tent where a fairy princess lives. And here we have you know, the basic understanding that you only find fairies in the wilderness. But this poem also has an important detail about how freakishly pale the skin of fairies is. And this might remind us of some of the characters from the fifth head of Cerberus, such as Dr. Marsh. So I think, you know, there's two parallels here. The one is that these encounters are going to happen in the wilderness and that they're going to happen around food and also pale skin. The next story I want to bring up is The Wife of Bath's Tale. This is one of the stories in the poetic story cycle by Geoffrey Chaucer that I think most of us have read some of uh, in high school. Uh, This is also about an Arthurian knight who encounters fairies in the wilderness. In this story, in The Wife of Bath's Tale, the hero sees fairies dancing in the woods, but when he approaches them, they vanish. And the vanishing is described very much in the same way that the vanishing of the shadow children at dawn is described in our present text. But what's really important about The Wife of Bath's Tale is that when he approaches the fairies he sees dancing, having a having a party, and they vanish, they are replaced by an old woman who talks to him and gives him some profound wisdom about the way the universe works. In this case, it's not about the Big Bang or about extension. It's, it's about the nature of women and what women want. But you can still see the parallel. And that Wolf, I think, here is playing with the image of this, that maybe the old woman actually is the spiritual or, or mental telepathic projection of of the fairies who were dancing around in the first place, but are unable to communicate with the Arthurian knight in the way that would be familiar to him. So they make this construct. I think that's something Wolf was playing with here. Of course, also, if you've you know read Tolkien, you've seen both of these types of fairy encounters before. And of course, Tolkien does a great job of representing the idea uh, that fairy encounters change you and some profound and permanent way. And he characterizes this by making use of the term elf friend. And here we see something similar. You are a friend of the shadow children, right? It's the same phrase being used here. So these parallels are going through the whole continuum, the whole continuity or spectrum of fairy stories. There's one final fairy story that we should 
mention here, and, and this is Sir Orfeo. This, as the name implies, is a retelling of the Orpheus story and the genre of a medieval fairy story. And of course, Orpheus has been an important figure, an important idea, really, in the fifth head of Cerberus, as we've talked about at length already. And this story, Sir Orfeo, doesn't involve encountering fairies in the woods the way they usually do, but it does have Sir Orfeo have to find a way into the realm of fairy in order to rescue his wife. And part of his story involves wandering around in a forest and foraging for food uh, as he searches for a way into fairy. And we've seen Sandwalker doing very much the same thing. And of course, Sir Orfeo, when he, he does find a way in, and in this case, it's through a cave that he finds in a cliff wall. And in the story, it's not called Thunder always, but, you know, it could be, right? So uh, there are all of these parallels here that Wolf is drawing on. And so the question that this should lead us to is, why does Wolf have fairies in this story? Why are there elves here? That's such a good question. And I'm really glad you ran us through that because it is fascinating. And we should also mention that a connection to Fifth Head also is through the naming of the prostitutes at the brothel as as nymphs, as having this kind of elfin fairy imagery all over that in, in kind of the main context of the world, though it's it's darkened and it's distorted. And that with the presence of butterflies, which is what a lot many of the girls are called in Fifth Head are, are named after butterflies, we're getting Wolf make these connections, these intertextual connections. But to answer your question, first of all, I think that this is a very consciously a, a heroic epic, like we've pointed out. This is a mythic tale for a people. It's probably about a moment of change for this people and they're naming their heroes the people that whatever comes after this moment are going to want to imitate for the values of their culture so far we've seen some of their values might be leave food for the shadow children when you're out sleeping on the road or care for the physical people in your life and worry less about finding the right sacrifice for the spiritual beings and the ghosts and things like that. I suspect, though, that within the context of the story, that it may be the case that the Shadow Children are real on on St. Anne and in need of a recontextualization. And the way the fairy story is being framed by being called a, a shadow friend, that they are going to come to the rescue at some crucial part, and that they're going to be a part of the change of this culture. As you said, that encounter with fairy does deeply change people. A great example of this is, is Susanna Clarke's uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which goes kind of deep into this sort of fairy mythology and the idea of the fairy king and all the all this kind of stuff is a part of it and the change and kind of the sinister nature at first to fairies but they're also very playful and you don't know what they're going to do and i think that's also what wolf wants here out of this encounter and the evocation of all of these fairy stories is that we don't know what they're going to do and we should be suspicious of them they are at once mischievous and vile, but also recognizing the sacredness of this of this creature. My guess is within the context of this story that John Marsh and Gene Wolfe by extension, but John Marsh in particular is examining the role of the shadow children in this culture in order to recontextualize them for the people of St. Anne in some way. And I'm excited to see how that's going to play out. Yeah, I am too. And I think Wolfe is doing two things here. One is he is just deploying the tropes of 
the hero's journey here. And he is mixing some traditions, mixing some metaphors, which is awesome. This is is how we get new stories to include learning new skills from the old wizard in the cave. Uh, In this case, the wizard in the cave might actually be the ghost of a dead person, and he might be teaching the hero how to transform into an otter so he can swim faster. That's something that's happening. He is now an elf friend or a shadow child friend and has the tools to call on them when they're in trouble. So, you know, we might see Sandwalker uh, end up stuck in the, the tomb of a Barrow White and be, you know, calling for Tom Bombadil at any moment. And so he's combining these traditions or mixing and matching here. But I think that one of the things that is working, that, that is at play here is I think Wolf wants us to take the implication that these people, the Shadow Children, might actually be the human colonizers from Earth being described in ways that are unfamiliar to us, that are confusing and alien, because we're getting this narrative from the perspective of the alien. I think he wants us to combine that implication with all of these attributes of fairy and to really ask for all the stories that we tell about people from another realm coming here and being more beautiful and smarter and opulent, but also stranger than we are, wouldn't we be fairies to other sentient creatures if we were to show up on their planet. That definitely feels like a, a part of the game that Wolf is playing. And I think it's something we want to want to keep our eyes on as the story progresses. I'm still kind of hung up with what Marsh is trying to do as a writer of this story. And I just, I can't tell you how excited I am to figure it all out because I think this is really one of those stories that has all the fun tropes of heroic literature with the puzzles we all love from Wolf. Yeah, it's awesome. I can't wait to see where this tale is going. And before we wrap up our discussion today, I'll just take an opportunity here to plug one of our other podcasts. And that's the podcast Agnes, in which I interview scholars who work on late antiquity, the the Middle Ages, and the Byzantine period about their work. And uh, just about uh, two months ago, I published an episode in which I talked to a Chaucer scholar, not about fairies, but uh, about Middle English literature. A really awesome episode that I would highly recommend. Even more germane, in a few months, I am going to publish an episode with a scholar who works on modern English literature, but edited a volume of scholarship on how the Inklings, that is C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and their colleagues at Oxford made use of this Arthurian literature in their scholarship and in the construction of their own genre literature. That's going to be an episode that I think will be worth listening to, even if that's the only one you ever do. Yeah, I'm definitely excited to hear that one. But I think for now, for for us, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects, such as Agnes, at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of this section of a story by John V. Marsh. We put a lot of food for thought out there. I bet this section in particular is just ripe for some great discussions about interpretation of what's going on, of what level the metaphors are being used and deployed in the story of extension of how two different modes of substance, if in fact this is a kind of panentheistic world, can interact with one another and what Wolf is trying to do with those ideas in this story. And remember that our next patron poll is happening very soon. So if you aren't already a patron, please check it out. The show really needs your support to function.
The next time, we'll continue by reading pages 107 to 121 of the 1994 Orb Edition. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.